Welcome to the Collections by Michelle Brown Show, a show about people living between the lines, standing boldly in the crosshairs of their intersectionality as they create change. This episode is brought to you in partnership with the Center for Peace Counseling and Holistic Healing Services. Welcome to Collections by Michelle Brown. I'm your host, Michelle Brown. Each week, we'll be talking with individuals living between the lines, standing boldly in the crosshairs of their intersectionality and creating change. Today, I'm joined by singer-songwriter Sandy Mulligan. Born in Buffalo, New York, Sandy took the scenic route to the Metro Detroit area. She was raised in Iowa, lived in Alabama, New Jersey, and as an artist in the mountains of West Virginia. Although she's been an artist and singer-songwriter, she's also always been an activist. She was involved in organizing Latino farm workers in Iowa, and she became active in the Catholic Church at a time when women were not supposed to be involved in church activities, playing guitar, and singing in church when that was not the norm. This mother of two operated a small business in New Jersey until both her children were grown. Then she bought a cabin deep in the mountains of West Virginia. There was an LGBTQ artist community there and she fit right in. Sandy began her art career making melted glass art, stained glass fresco paintings, mobiles, plaques, and walking sticks. She sold her work throughout West Virginia and eventually in the Washington, D.C. area, showing her art at art shows, museums, and libraries. She was asked to show her work at the University of Michigan. Eventually, she made the front page of a few Michigan papers and was featured in the Oakland Press and Detroit News. Sandy fell in love with Michigan and moved here 10 years ago. Her daughter, who's also a musician, encouraged her to resume her music career in earnest. She started small, again blending her art with activism through her singing. Her solo career eventually led her to founding a group called the Gypsies, which sang songs to lift up and empower the lesbian community. It consisted of all gay women who were dedicated to making music that didn't compromise who they were, living out and authentically. The Gypsies performed over a hundred gigs in five years, including playing at the legendary jazz club in Detroit and opening for the Detroit Music Awards. They were finalists in the Detroit Blues Society competition. They were one of a dozen blues bands chosen to perform at the Hastings Street Ballroom. Sandy continues to perform as a solo artist and with her daughter. She was chosen as one of a dozen women to sing the blues at the Blues Girls of Summer with a legendary Detroit artist, Queen of the Blues, Thornetta Davis. Sandy was nominated for an Outstanding Women's Award and for a Family Music Award for the work she's done with her daughter, Chrissy. Since winning the award, Sandy has stepped out of the spotlight for a minute 
taking time to enjoy life with her wife, her grandchildren, and pets. Sandy, welcome to Collections by Michelle Brown. How are you today? Hello, Michelle. I'm doing absolutely wonderful. How are you? I'm doing good. You know, I often like to tell people how I met someone. And, you know, you and I met um, at Affirmations. They were doing an uh, open mic. And at one point, we were both just sort of going. And then later on, um, I became like the host of that. And you would come and perform. And we called you and the Gypsies the official band of Affirmation. <laughs> That's right. We go way back. And uh-huh. I used to love it how, how our relationship started because you were up there reading poetry and I would get up there and do songs and we both realized we're doing music of empowerment and it was kind of cool how we eventually melded together and said, let's try to do some things together. You know, I mean, it, was pretty, uh-huh. it was pretty special, wasn't it? Yes, it was, you know, and it, and it was nice because although we had everyone there, there was a strong presence of women, and like we were through our poetry, through song, I mean, sometimes people who had never been on a mic before were encouraged by it and would come up and, and would say a poem or a rap or even sing, you know, so, right, you know, right. I still have people, particularly women, who were like, what a welcoming space that was. Right, right. And how many people that had so much talent that they were afraid to take that step. And it was Mm kind of nice because the group there at Affirmations was so welcoming. And we would just embrace somebody who'd say, well, I do have something to say, but I'm not sure. They'd sit near the back. And, you know, I have to admit, you and me are not shy people. <laughs> we, we get right out there because we have something to say. We'll say it. But I loved it that there were some people that were marginalized in the back, and we would always pull them up, and we'd get uh-huh. them up there. And you could watch you could watch their face. Some of them would just tell a story. Some would tell a personal poem or even read somebody else's poem that was important to them or sing. And you could just watch the change in their face. You know, and and it was such an accepting group there that we just longed for that. We wanted to hear that. You know, we we took them in, and then you watch somebody literally grow wings. You know, that was that was mm-hmm. that was fantastic. I loved doing that. I have to. Oh, you, you know, and it and it was you know, and people talk about activism, and activism can take all different forms. Yes, sometimes you have to be out, you know, raising your fist and shouting, but sometimes it is just that, making that welcoming, inclusive space and hearing what's going on with others and deciding that at that point in time, you know, sitting on the sidelines wasn't enough. And now you have always been an activist, I've what? always steered the pot, Michelle. <laughs> well, what what was it? Was it something that was it uh, uh, something that you just from the times, or was it someone in your family who told you, you know, don't just come with your bowl, stir the pot? Well, I'll tell you, my my family's always been involved in what I want to say is kind of mild activism, where we always believed in what was right. And we made a point of showing it to other people, okay? And uh, I can remember uh, my mother, who's, who's passed away now, but I can remember her teaching us something that was very small, but it was meaningful. 
She used to say, oh, sure, we could put $20 in the collection basket at church. She goes, but let's do this instead. And what we would do is buy gloves, at, like at the time, like dollar sort of stores. We'd buy gloves, and we'd drive around, and if she saw somebody who didn't have gloves, she'd give it to them. Just no discussion, nothing, just, oh, here. Give it to them, and we drive away. You know, and those small little acts of kindness, when you see that as a child, you say, wow, this is pretty powerful stuff. This is powerful. You know, my mother made a very small act that was really meaningful in somebody's life. And I think it was from that that I started to see the injustice. Because mm. at the time I was living in Iowa, and even though I was a young woman, I was still somebody who said, I have a voice. I want to make changes. And at the time... You know, every summer the vegetable pickers would show up, and they were all Mexican migrants, and they were living in hog shacks, okay? And as being somebody who was active in the church, um, we would go around and collect bleach bottles, empty bleach bottles, which then they would refill and use for their water supply. And this, this affected me. I'm, I'm a young woman at the time, and I'm thinking, this isn't right, you know, why do these people have such horrible situations that they're living in, you know? And it was by questioning this that I found out there are people that care about this. There are people that want to make changes in this, you know, but it's not going to come easy. It's going to come at a price. And, mm. and I got involved in that because I saw what was wrong. I saw the power of my mother making little changes to make things right. And I think there was like an unconscious decision that I have to make things right. I have to help to make things right. And, and that stayed with me, Michelle. That stayed with me my whole life. You know, it's interesting that you have that because I often tell people that, you know, part of what I did is like during the summer we had, uh, we would go to Western Michigan and stay with an aunt, but part of what it was, again, there were migrant workers, and sometimes we would go, and to see what it, I mean, we could go to my, back to my aunt's house at the end of the day of, like, picking berries or whatever, but like you said, the conditions that they lived in, what they didn't have, the fact that the children were kept out of school, you yeah. know, and it wasn't like they were unintelligent, but they had to follow where it went. And like you, that had a profound effect on me. And even to this day, when I hear people talk about uh, the migrant community coming up and they're taking jobs from us, and I'm going like, have you ever picked lettuce or berries? I mean, right. you know. Right. Do they even understand mm-hmm. right. how hard that is to spend? You know, we don't even want to walk outside from our house to the car when it's hot. And they're mm-hmm. out there for 8, 12 hours getting paid by the bushel. I mean, really. You're right, Michelle. Like, who thinks somebody wants this job? We are so fortunate that they even do this. You know, we are so fortunate. But it also tells us that the living conditions of where they came from are so deplorable that they're willing to do this just to live in our country, you know? Mm-hmm. And and you yeah. know what? And like you said, and that American dream, to provide a better existence for their children. You oh, know, right. And, and, and that's what right. we And you think of all these... Right, and you think about this caravan coming from, I mean, a lot of people are against it. A lot of pe- I know a lot of people are saying close the borders. But just think how horrible it has to be for you to walk more than 2,000 miles to beg for, for some sort of home here in America. 
some mm-hmm. sort of reprieve, you know, from what they're going through. I mean, that's, they don't have food. They don't have a lot of money to make this trip, and they're walking all these miles, carrying children, whatever they have to do. You know, I'm, I'm the sort of person that my heart opens up to somebody like this, if you're mm-hmm. making this kind of effort. And, and, you know, I know the rhetoric right now is bringing up the criminals and the bad parts of it, but that is so small. And that's mm-hmm. fear-mongering. That's really not what this is all about. You know, mm-hmm. it's really not. You know, mm-hmm. that's just, just fear-mongering. You can throw a couple names out there, and you will get a response from certain people. But the reality is these are good people like you and me who just want something better for their children, you know, mm-hmm. nothing more, just want a better life, you know. Mm-hmm. So my you know, always going out for that. Uh-huh. Now, you know, another thing that, you know, in reading your bio that we have in common is, like, we both grew up in the Catholic Church. I can recall right. just being, like, you know, in fact, people say, what made you, you know, you know, people say, are you recovering Catholic? I said, no, I just left. <laughs> <laughs> I just left, no, I, you know. I did too. And, you know, and, 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 and part of it was, like, the fact, the role that um, – Women could not play, you know, right. uh, the right. fact that you had to, to show deference to this very patriarchal organization and that right. women couldn't. And, and you often would see, like, the nuns were doing all the work and showing some compassion. And here you were, you know, little Miss Activist. So you go, <laughs> you take up your guitar, and you go up and say, well, here I am, you know. I and, did. again, I know that you were one of the first. Like, how was that received in how did you break that barrier? Well, you know, I I always heard that saying, when you pray, when you sing, you pray twice. Okay? Mm. And and that was my gift at the time. I could sing, and I loved the sound of hymns in the church because you'd get that beautiful echo. And I always thought, oh, this will inspire people. And it, I was very fortunate. I had this priest. His name was Father Beakley who also ended up leaving the church and becoming a bit of a, a, well, actually a very serious activist, okay? Uh, And Father Beakley was like, you know, you sing, you make people happy, you've got this inspirational sound that you want to give, go ahead, let's try it in church. Let's try it. You know, and this was sort of like a wave that was sort of happening. I can remember um, there's this magazine that always comes with the Sunday newspaper, and one day they featured uh, a priest that was uh, in Davenport, Iowa, who everybody thought was so radical because he didn't wear the normal robes, okay? And I immediately, me and Father Beakley got in touch with that priest and said, why don't we do a mass and add music? And we did. And I played uh-huh. guitar at a church, and it was well-received. I mean, you're going to have some of the older people who weren't too uh, excited about it. You did have people walk out. But the end result is they were getting more young people in, which at the time was great because it was the time when people were leaving the church because of its stagnantness, you know, Mm -hmm. it was so stagnant. And so I really felt like I was doing something really good. You know, when you're younger, you really want to do good by your religion, you know, and I knew there were flaws, but I was working with this great team of people. Um, not only this priest who was also an activist, but several social workers who worked along with him. And, I mean, they, they actually went on to Arizona to work with Cesar Chavez eventually. Um, but, but at the time, 
they were willing to say, let's try this. Let's see what happens. And I did it. <laughs> mm-hmm. and, and it was it was really accepted. I liked it. I thought it was great. We ended up bringing in, like, another guitarist. We started making it a little more formal. And I actually did that for seven years, Michelle. I ended up doing it for seven years. And um, as as unusual as it was when I started, by the time I left the church, it was pretty much an everyday thing to have a guitarist in church, you know. Mm-hmm. But at first it was pretty, it was pretty radical because they wanted to stick to the to the organ music and the old way, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. So yeah, but now now being a lecturer in Alabama, I know. I was going, I was going to college in Southern Alabama, Mobile. Okay, you don't get more Southern than that. Okay, mm-hmm. I was considered a Yankee. <laughs> yeah, and and the the word down there was, you know, if if you're from the north, you're a Yankee, and if you stay, you're a damn Yankee. Okay. Oh, uh-huh. <laughs> well, yeah, they did not like, you know, I had that northern accent, and I was not exactly accepted. But there were these little churches all over Alabama that they considered them missionaries because they were they were in very very poverty stricken areas of Alabama. Uh, predominantly black areas as well, okay? And the priest would go to visit because they didn't even have enough money to run a church, okay? So the priest would go to visit, and they'd have these makeshift uh, churches. They could be in a cafeteria somewhere. And all the people would come to the service, okay? And I would go with Father Beakley, and there was another father, Father Clemson. We would go, and we would sing, and we would sing, and I'd play my guitar, and then one year, right around Easter, they said, we need a lector. And now this is the role where a man comes up, and he's reading different passages of the Bible, and then the priest reads, then he reads. And it's kind of like a little, like almost a little play as part of the Mass, right? And they asked me to do it. And I wasn't so sure because I could just tell that this may not be well accepted, okay? Uh, but I did it. And everyone was really wonderful about it, okay? But now there's a little contrast to the story, Michelle, because we were in a very poor black community. I was totally accepted as a woman doing something that was not the norm, okay? We then took this to the main church, which was in Saraland. I believe it was called St. Mary's Church, and I did the same thing. Now, this is no longer a very poor missionary church, but sort of like a middle-class white all-American church, right? Mm-hmm. And, and when I did the same thing there, oh, boy, that, that raised the hair of a lot of people. I mean, there was literally meetings after uh, one woman pulled me aside and told me Jesus would be ashamed of me, okay? <laughs> Um, mm-hmm. Oh yes, it, it was. There was not a good reaction. Okay, and I can remember just trying to figure out, you know, young college student in in school, trying to figure out how come in one community it went so good, in another community it went so bad, and I think that was a point in my life where I'm I'm starting to see the differences in people, not understanding change, not understanding each other, not understanding that things. Sometimes are better changes. Sometimes better, and and you watch this this other community, the Sarah Lands, better off community, reject it. They didn't want change. They wanted to hold on to the old. A woman mm-hmm. stepping up in church was just a little too much for them. 
you know. So it, it was an interesting lesson in life, a very interesting right. lesson. Mm-hmm. Well, I can, I can imagine, I mean, especially because, okay, again, our chiropractor, I had been to Mo- my godmother is from Mobile, Alabama, and I went to Mobile once. She's like, "Oh, you have to go to Mobile," and yes, I was a Yankee. You know? Oh, yeah. I mean, and, and I mean, you know, it was like I was counting the days. I mean, how you said ten days? Maybe I need yeah. to leave. You know, I mean, like a culture shock. And here, I mean, you were you were born in Buffalo. You lived in Iowa. Here, right. you're in Alabama. So I can imagine what a culture shock. Not only oh. a culture shock, but then, like like you said, and then to see these two different worlds, you know, had had right. must have been for you, just to to collide in every in so many different ways, you know, mm-hmm. and and I was very fortunate to hook up with a very dynamic group there in Mobile. Um, I think I'm just attracted to people that are dynamic and want to make changes, right? Mm-hmm. And I was actually even able to have uh, I was able to once host a group, uh, there was a group of several of us, we hosted David Brinkley, who at the time was kind of like, uh, you know, like one of the bigger newsmen at the time, okay? Uh-huh. And, and he came to talk, and, and it was like, oh, it was like a breath of fresh air, like there's somebody else who's, who sees this big vision, you know? And, and it's just like, as a young woman, you, you start to say, wow, I've been in Iowa, I've been in Buffalo, I'm in Mobile, I'm... I'm working with the poor people. I'm working with the well-to-do people. I'm working with the powerful people. And you really get kind of a good, rounded vision of the world, you know? And I think Uh that was a good way to launch my life, you know, that I didn't just launch in in the normal ways. I launched getting a lesson from every single direction. And and I think that made my life, like, more broad-minded, more open, Uh more, uh, Uh more accepting, you know, whereas... I understand some people never have these things happen, and it might be scary for them to have changes, you know, whereas I was, I was given these opportunities, and who knows, maybe for a reason, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, so you took your Yankee self back up north with those, when it came time to raise your kids. <laughs> Hi. <Yes. laughs> and, and where do and, I end up? New so I end up in New Jersey. Uh-huh. uh-huh. <laughs> And I'm sure, okay, because you've been out in Iowa, then you've been in the South. I'm sure that when you when you hit New Jersey, they heard a very different sort of accent, and they wondered, like, where is she from? Oh, I get that even now. Mm-hmm, <laughs> mm-hmm. And and Jersey, Jersey is like an entirely different planet. Okay. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's a very good way to put it because when you go to Jersey, it's more than culture shock. It's just shock in all kinds of ways. It's it's shocking the way people are. Their attitudes are very. I mean, there's good people everywhere, but it's a very. Um, it's kind of like I got to get you before you get me kind of attitude, you know. Uh-huh. And maybe it's because there's so many people cramped in small areas, but but it was and and everything was very fast, and we're living just on the outskirts of New York City. You have that whole metro thing going on, and somebody who came from Iowa and then Alabama, this that was total culture shock. You know that uh, I like to tell a little story how when I first moved to New Jersey, it took me four months to actually get in a car and drive. You know, <laughs> I've driven my whole life because mm-hmm. the cars, just, uh, New Jersey traffic is insane. You know, the cars just whiz, and you just got to close your eyes and say, "I'm going." 
or are you going to sit there? <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so it just took me a while to just get used to everything there. But but I did raise my children there. You know, we did have a beautiful community of friends there. You know how Hillary Clinton said it takes a village, right? Mm-hmm. Well, that was exactly how I raised my kids. I found, and this was important to me, you know, I took this very serious. I found a place for us to live where, first of all, it was multicultural. There was everybody on all kinds of, of uh, monetary levels, all kinds of different cultures, and, uh, and, and this is where we lived. There was no, we don't like you because you're this, we don't like you because you're that, because everybody was there. It was just like the little melting pot, you know. Uh-huh. And what was great is there was a few of us women, we were very close friends, and we raised all these kids. We, like, raised uh. the kids in the neighborhood. So if, 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 if it was Halloween, Sandy's van had 12 kids in it because we're going to go <laughs> everywhere trick-and-treating. Okay? Uh-huh. But uh-huh. knowing everybody's going to go with Sandy's kids because we're all going to go sledding, you know. It was like I just became the mother of the neighborhood, and I loved that. I absolutely loved it, you know. And, and, and it's kind of funny because even to this day, you know, my kids are very grown right now and, and adults and having families of their own. But even to this day, a lot of those kids stay close to me. They're friends on Facebook, and they remember all of these times. So, yeah, it made a difference, and I loved it. It was a really good time in life. Do you think that your path to New Jersey, you know, um, having been in Iowa and experienced and, and developed that empathy for for migrant workers and Mexican farm workers, and then going to Alabama and seeing, you know, how the poor lived and how the rich lived and processing yes. all of that. Do you think that, that you it helped you bring something to that community that not only were you looking for in an environment to raise your children, but that you were able to share some of that experience, that empathy with those kids who piled into the van to go with Mama right. Sandy? Yes, absolutely that made a difference because a lot of these kids, their entire life was nothing but maybe this one block in New Jersey. That was their life. There was no, you know, I can remember this one story, Michelle. This one boy, he came over to, you know, my door was always open. Anybody wanted to come for dinner, you were welcomed. You know, anytime you were hungry, my door was open, okay? I don't think I would be that way if I didn't have the experiences I've had. Okay, and I can remember this one time, this one boy came over, and I was serving a salad, and I had blue cheese and croutons, and this poor child never even heard of croutons. He never heard of blue cheese. Mm. He didn't even ever have a salad, you know. He was just like, what is this, you know, and and so that's a small thing, a really small thing, but but these are these are the little things where when somebody comes into your neighborhood, and opens up a world to a lot of people, it makes a difference, even if it's something small, you know, something mm-hmm. small. Like that. You know, one, one of my projects I'm working on now is a book of, of pictures, songs, and poetry, right? And it's called Small Wonders. And, and this is where I am right now. I think these little small wonders, these little moments become big things as you get older, you know, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. that they might mean insignificant at the time, but they're so meaningful. And, yeah, I think all these kids who would always come to my house, have dinner, or we'd go sledding or bicycle riding, you know, it was whatever 
whatever my family was doing, the door was open to everyone. Whatever we were doing, I think it had a profound effect on everyone. I think so. You know, I, I would like to think so. Um, a lot of times I hear comments back how, how it made a difference. So I think, I think in a way that was my role at the time, you know. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Well, Sandy, we're going to take our first break, and we're going to get into Sandy on her own when we come back. So oh. we will be right back. <laughs> if you're <good>. joining me. <laughs> This is Collections by Michelle Brown, and my guest today is singer-songwriter Sandy Mulligan. We'll be right back. This episode of Collections by Michelle Brown is brought to you in partnership with the Center for Peace Counseling and Holistic Healing Services, bringing balance to your mind, body, and spirit. For more information or to schedule an appointment, visit the Center at www.thecenterforpeacellc.com. back here on Collections by Michelle Brown with Sandy Mulligan. You know, Sandy, you know, it's like life has acts, and you have that act when you're the young person coming around, and then you have that act when you're that parent raising them and and their friends. But then your next act, you went to the mountains of West Virginia. I mean, you know, which which is it's just almost like not south, but not north. What do no. to to West Virginia and a cabin deep in the mountains? <laughs> that is that is quite a change, you know, because you're going from the crazy fast life of New York City and New Jersey to wilderness. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, there's a national park in Virginia called Shenandoah, mm, and I went I've there. Heard of that. Gone, yeah. Oh, it's. It's beautiful. It's a, like a 120-mile drive at 35 miles an hour of nothing but beauty, pure, unadulterated beauty. You see the mountains, the trees, the overlooks, and that got to me. You know, that got to me, and I think I found, I guess you can put it, I found my spirit there. I found like mm-hmm. a deeper spirit inside of me. Um, but when the kids were grown, I said, you know, it's time for me to do a little something that I've always wanted to do. And I've always been a singer-songwriter, but I didn't real and I, and and I don't know if I mentioned this to you, um Michelle, but at that time I had also put out a CD. I had copyrighted about 20, 30 songs, okay? But I just put them aside and said, I'm not going to deal with this now. I think I want to just kind of find myself and find my spirit, okay? So I bought myself a small cabin in the woods, and it was right on the Shenandoah-West Virginia line, so right between Virginia and West Virginia. And I bought a little cabin, and the way I found this place is sort of, you know, sometimes things fall into place, and it's kind of magical and synchronicity, and you're like, hmm, how did this happen? 
Mm-hmm. Well, I once got lost in a rainstorm, and the only place I could go to was this little diner where I could at least just sit and get a reprieve from the bad storm, right? And mm-hmm. I was driving through the back roads of West Virginia, Virginia at the time. I didn't even really realize I was in West Virginia. I thought I was still in Virginia. <laughs> and everybody was, I know, but, and it's pre-GPS, like right? <laughs> yes, yes, exactly. We just go, and I was like, yeah, I just want to ride around and look at things. You know, I just want to kind of have those moments where you just kind of go and do your own thing. And, and I got at this diner, and, you know, and just talking to people, I started realizing there's a little art community because they asked me what I do, and it's like, I don't know, I'm a singer, songwriter, artist. And they're like, oh, you would love it up there. You know, there's this little community. So I stayed the night in that area. And then the next day I went up there to look around and I realized I was seeing all these gay flags, you know, rainbow flags. Uh-huh. And, and being a gay woman, I, I realized this is really unusual for West Virginia, okay? Because this is a very wilderness, rough, mountainous area with a lot of rough, tough people. Okay? Uh, not, not that you think of as a hotbed of gay activity. <laughs> not at all. <laughs> so to see one flag was like, wow, to see several. I was like, I don't know where I'm at, but I love this place, okay? And, and then just come to find that was a, a gay artist community tucked away called Lost River, okay, it's called Lost River, and tucked away in the middle of mountains. I mean, there's no cell phone towers, barely, you, you can't even use like a cell phone at all. You have to use landlines because there's no way to talk, okay. It's literally that deep in the mountains, hour and a half on a dirt road just to get there. But I felt like I found my people, okay. So, so uh-huh. I, I bought a place there, and that's when I decided this is, I've got I've to find out who I'm all about, Okay, I think I had something to offer. And, you know, after New Jersey, I didn't feel like like uh, getting politically involved or, or getting into activism was the right thing to do at that time. Okay, and maybe it's because New Jersey was too harsh. You know, it was too harsh uh-huh. of, a, of an area to try that. And I said, well, I'll get into my art. And uh, I couldn't have found a better place, Michelle. It was it was beautiful, rolling hills, views everywhere, and uh, and there was this thing where I I always wanted to tell stories with art, okay, and so I started making these little sculptures out of glass, and at first little ones, and then bigger ones, and then more intricate ones, and then I started melting glass, uh-huh. and then I started bending metal, and then I started mixing metal with glass, and I started coming up with these really beautiful sculptures. Okay, and, uh, uh, you know, slowly they started getting around, you know, first at a local co-op, and a friend of mine owned a store in downtown uh, Winchester, Virginia, and she said, hey, Sandy, why don't you do my front, do the whole front of my store. I love your work, just fill the whole front. And I did. I put in like 20 or 30 of these sculptures in the windows, and you could just watch people walking by and just stopping and going, whoa, what is this? Okay? And when you, when you solve these sculptures, like each one would tell a miniature story. Okay? Like uh, one piece was called Ruminating on a Thought, and it was a piece of glass overlapping a piece of glass that was a mirror, overlapping a piece that's translucent and then this goes over and over and over again with the idea that this is how you think of a thought first solid then you reflect Uh on it then you see through it then you go over it again and again and again so see that's how my stories my 
my art would tell small stories in the sculptures. And, uh, and that kind of became my thing then, you know. <laughs> uh-huh. Right. And uh, so I, I started getting work, started getting out more and more. I started getting asked to do shows. I started selling a lot of them. And uh, I, I branched out into fresco paintings where they were 3D paintings where I used, I used whatever I found there. So it would be pieces of wood. Uh, pieces of grass, pieces of clay, and I would put these things together and make a picture, okay? And uh, those also started going really well, too, as well. And, and, I, and I think, like, one of the high points of my stay in West Virginia was when uh, uh, NPR, or not NPR, uh, PBS contacted me and asked me if I would donate one of my pieces for their annual uh, uh, fundraising and I thought maybe it was a local one, but it turned out mm-hmm. it was Washington, D.C. And the Washington, D.C. auction was, like, really big-name artists. And I was like, why are they asking me, you know? There, I mean, you have these beautiful works of art from people that were really established. I was like, why are they asking me? And, and, and I came to realize that my work was actually that good. Sure. And it was... Yeah, and it really, it was a moment of saying, wow, self-realization, I've got it. I'm doing what I've wanted, and, and I'm making it, you know. I'm actually making it. And the did, you find, did you find being in that community, not only a community of artists, but a community of LGBTQ people, that that yes. sort of also, you know, there weren't the pressures or you didn't have to worry about, well, so-and-so accept me, will this happen? But did it sort of like really like free your mind to explore? Oh, Oh, absolutely. Because all Mm -hmm. of a sudden those, these are the very things where in Jersey I had to hide, okay? Mm -hmm. Because this would not have been accepted in New Jersey, okay? It simply wouldn't. And I could tell by the reaction to other people, Okay, I could tell by comments being made, and I, I have to admit I kept myself hidden when I was in Jersey. I I, I stayed on the down low as far as my sexuality went. You uh-huh. know, um, so when I went to West Virginia, and not only am I in the woods and could be myself, but I can be with other people who think like me, feel like me, and it yes, it it made my art explode. I don't think I could have been the artist I was if it wasn't for that community, because all of a sudden, you know, you get together with, with a bunch of other women, and we're not judging each other. We're just being gay women, you know. It wasn't, mm-hmm. like, it wasn't unusual. It just felt like the norm. And, and mm-hmm. to be marginalized in New Jersey and then just feel like you can be your true self now in West Virginia, as an artist, well, you know that, Michelle, that's a very freeing moment to just mm-hmm. know you can put your art out there and be yourself. It, it, there's a certain purity in it, you know. Mm-hmm. There's, there's a real purity in your art that way. I mean, I mean, I imagine many people would think, you know, just the opposite. You went to West Virginia, weren't you afraid? But, it, but like you said, here is a community. And also being, being in community with people. Also, you know, where you feel safe, you feel encouraged, you know, they right. – inspire you and you inspire them so oh, i mean right. all that helps you know did you right. ever have like how was often the story that people saw in your art different from what you had hoped to express or did you just 
you know, put it there and hope that they be pleasantly surprised by the stories that they would tell you that they have mm. found in your art? Oh, that is such a good question. You know, I, I called my artwork introspective perception, okay? And that's, if you saw my piece, and each piece really did tell a little story, and if you got the story from it, I felt like I did my job, right? Mm-hmm. But you're right. Different people would get different stories. And that, that is what became the best part of this art, is listening to what everybody's different story was, okay? Because what my story might have been totally different from somebody else seeing it, and it becomes their story, you know? And neither story is right or wrong, because that's pretty much what art should be doing. You, get, you look at it, you see it, this is the story I got from it. I have this one piece that I did. Um, it was one of my most interesting pieces, and it was one that they featured at University of Michigan right in the front case when you walked in. It was, it was glass hearts, okay? One glass heart over another glass heart over another glass heart. And each one success, successively got smaller, okay? Uh-huh. And dripping from these hearts, I melted bright red, ruby red glass to drip, so it looks like blood coming from the heart, okay? And these hearts are now mounted with a metal stake on a wooden stand, okay? So they're like, so it's up in the air, but the blood, the, the, the blood, the glass that I melted dripped onto the pedestal, and then I also made it so that it would drip, like it dripped off the pedestal uh-huh. onto the display and almost off of the display okay now it was all done in glass but it looked like blood okay that was a profound piece okay now i I call that piece heartbreak right because my story was each time you bleed a little from a heartbreak your heart gets smaller and smaller okay uh right so that was my story and i wanted the blood to show that this is pain you know, this isn't blood. This is pain. This is what pain, this is what heartbreak does to your heart. And that's what I, that was my story. But then you uh-huh. get so many people come and look at this and just, you know, I, I, I'm, I would love to sit there with my kids because they were very involved when I put this show at, at, Univ- at University of Michigan. They would come and we would just stand around and do nothing but sit on the floor and listen to what people were saying. Like, that was just the best part because they knew my stories. They knew the story of each piece I had. But then we would hear other people's stories. And, and it would be off the wall sometimes, but you know what? That was their story, and that was okay. That art gave them a different story, you know. But I do remember that one piece just completely blowing a lot of people's minds and coming up with all sorts of different directions, you know. That's, that's, what, that, that's what art is, right? Yeah, exactly, because it was sort of like what you and I were talking about earlier about with uh, music, with song, with poetry. Like you put it out there one way, but you never know how it's going to to touch someone. But that's really what you want it to do is to touch someone. And you have no yeah. control over what direction it's going to take them. But that's what the, the beauty, the strength of art is. You put it out there it then sort of takes on a life of its own. It touches people. It moves them. There's a lot of singers out there, just to go back to singing a little bit, there's a lot of singers out there who, who have done this 
through like the last, you know, 50, 60 years have used their music and it's got a power and it may not be slamming you in the face with the message. It doesn't have Mm -hmm. to. It has a power and that's how like my art was at the time. It doesn't have to hit you in the face, but it has a power all on its own because it's telling you a story. You know, and when you leave, when you walk away, I, I hope a lot of these people had that in their head that they remember this. You know, I know there was a neurologist from T- Toledo at the time who bought several pieces of my work, and I asked him what he's going to do with it, and he told me he's giving it to his children. And I thought that oh. was so unusual because I thought as a neurologist, I thought there were interesting pieces that he picked, and I thought maybe he was going to maybe put them in his office or display them, in, you know, in some way. He's giving to his children because he said, my children are going to look at this every day and think. And he got the idea of introspective perception, and he said he wants them to look at these pieces and come up with their own stories every day and mm. come up with a story. I thought, wow, what a great dad, you know. So how did you get to being, showing your work at the University of Michigan? Um, it was a program called Gifts of Art. And uh, what I had done is uh, my family had already moved up to Michigan, and I was in West Virginia. And this, this uh, it's kind of interesting. There was this art show going on in Michigan at a country club. And just by chance, it was just it was synchronicity at its finest. They contacted me, and somebody had seen one of my pieces, I guess on vacation, and said, hey, you know, we're doing a show of fine art. If you're ever this way, we'd like, you know, have you involved in our show. And I told them, well, yeah, I'd love to, you know. And I, and I did do a show there. And from that show, somebody at the University of Michigan contacted me and said, wow, we heard about these pieces. This is really unusual. We would love to do, you know, have you be a part of our show. And uh, it, 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 really did make kind of a stir because I was the front page of the Independent. They gave me an entire section in the, uh, the Oakland Press. I was uh-huh. in the Detroit News. Uh, we have a picture, a family picture, where, you know, they have those newspaper boxes in front of the diners. Well, there's mom's picture on two of them, and there's my kid. <laughs> uh-huh. I'm going, that's my mom, okay? <laughs> uh-huh. so, so the show really was different. You know, I heard things like, it's not your father's not your father's stained glass, you know. <laughs> it's something different. And that was kind of cool. I did do something kind of different and unusual. I took it all the way to there. And uh, and then I felt like, yeah, I did that. Been there, done that. And I stopped. I stopped then. I felt like I, I reached the point where I wanted to. And uh, I didn't need to do anything more. And I, and I kind of walked away from the art then. Hmm. Now, had yeah. you been to Michigan before then? Uh, no. No, actually, I uh, uh, I have an interesting story how I came to Michigan myself. Uh-huh. Um, I had a dream once that Aretha told me, Aretha Franklin <laughs> gave me a dream. <laughs> this is a family story that is going to go on for generations, actually, um, where Aretha Franklin came to me in a dream and said, it's okay, honey child, come to Michigan, and it's all going to be all right. It's okay. And those were her exact words. You come okay, and we moved to Michigan, <laughs> just like that on on a on a dream. But sometimes you just got to say, well, there must be a reason for this, you know. She said mm-hmm. it would be all right, so so we moved to Michigan, you know, and 
and my children flourished, and uh, I came and joined them after a little bit. You know, they went first. I came and joined them, and uh, we've been here about 11 years now, and I love it. I belong here. This is the state, from all the states that I've lived in, this is the state that I'm the most aligned with. This is where I feel mm-hmm. like it's a home. There's something about ah, oh, there's something about Detroit. I don't know what it is. There's a vibe there. You don't get any other places. And I've traveled. You know me. I've traveled all over the United States over and over again. I've been everywhere. Mm-hmm. But you go into Detroit, you know, my first thought is, is like the beginning of a Marvin Gaye song. You just kind of feel it, you know. Mm-hmm. You just kind of feel it. It's in your, it's in your vibe. You feel it, I, and I love it. It's, it's part of my soul now. I, I can never leave here. Aretha told you to come in a and dream. I did. And how I did. did you, when, <laughs> how, did, how did her passing affect you? Because clearly you had a, a type of psychic, spiritual connection with her. How did it feel when the woman who told you to come to Detroit, and Detroit was her home, and now yes. she's gone? How did that affect you? Well, I, you know, I, I love Aretha's music. Just mm-hmm. absolutely love it. You know, you put on one of her songs, like, she, well, you know, any of them songs, that, and you just feel it. You get that real deep feeling, you know, and you don't get that with a lot of other singers, but you do with mm-hmm. her. And, and losing her was, yes, that you knew there was a loss. This was a loss. There's nobody that's going to take her place in the way that she did what she did, you know. And I, I'll tell you, I was glued to the TV. I watched her entire funeral. Um, you know, me and my wife, Carrie, are planning on going to, her, to visit her tombstone uh, hopefully the next few weeks, you know, because yeah, I don't know why, but something about her connected in me, something uh-huh. about the music, something about the rhythm, the depth. And I went with it, and I've never regretted it. But losing her was like losing a real significant part of your, how can you put it? Like, you know, you've got that deeper soul part deep in you. Uh-huh. And a little part of that is gone, and we're not going to get that back. You know, I don't think we're going to get that back. She, she was very special, Michelle, very, very special. Uh-huh. Yeah, it definitely affected me, you know. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Well, Sandy, we're going to take our second break here, and we're going to talk about your time here in Michigan and singing. So we will be right back. Awesome. Collections by Michelle Brown airs every Thursday at 7 p.m. You can subscribe now and listen to the podcast on Blog Talk Radio, iTunes, Stitcher, or SoundCloud. Be sure to like the Collections by Michelle Brown Facebook page and mark your calendar so you never miss an episode. back here with Sandy Mulligan on Collections by Michelle Brown. So Aretha called you, you came. Your daughter also sings. 
Yes. Was singing a big part of your family life growing up? Um, yes, I come from a very musical family in Buffalo. Um, my family, the, the larger family, the Ruta family in Buffalo, owned a, a music store, a record store. And uh, at the time, um, that was like, that was the center of our life. Music mm-hmm. was the center. Uh, my family has pictures of me sitting on some younger uh, rock star's laps that I didn't even know because I was like, <laughs> a little kid. You know, I guess like Fabian and those, you know. <laughs> mm-hmm. So so my uncle had, had this music store in Buffalo, and our entire family revolved around music. I, I can't tell you how many times he would be up there playing with a band, and me and my cousins would be standing on stage singing or clapping or dancing, you know. It just was a part of our everyday life. Music was just what we grew up with. And mm-hmm. uh, so, so I always wanted to get into it, but I was never, I was never quite sure how to. When I, when I was in Jersey, I went ahead, like I told you, I did a CD. I recorded a CD. I put out uh, 20, 30 uh, copywritten songs, and one of the highlights was Willie Nice with Nelson's uh, company actually contacted a lawyer, and they were interested in my music. That was kind of a highlight, you know. Uh, it never went anywhere, but at the time it was like, wow, you know, I'm not even writing country music and he wanted it, you know. So uh-huh, that, was, uh-huh. that was kind of exciting. But I completely walked away from music, went into art, and when I came back to Michigan, you know, this is Motown. This is this is where you go for music, you know. Aretha told me to go, and I said, I'm, I'm going to do this. You know, I'm going to do this. But my daughter started singing, and she, she's, you've heard her. She's amazing. Oh, oh, yeah. Oh, she is just an amazing singer. Um, she's, she's not only a singer and all right, but she does a lot of backup singing, a lot of uh, recordings. Uh, she herself just put out a CD herself, uh, just finished recording this past week. So she's, she's wonderful. And when I first came to Michigan, she started. She was just singing in a few clubs kind of putting together a little band and and you know and and I told her she's like mom you gotta sing you're you're the one that inspired me you're your cd I've, I've seen these songs every day for the last 20 years you got to get this out there and, and Michelle I know I've told you this story and I've told this story before to audiences uh I said Chrissy I can never take away your sunshine you know you you, uh-huh. you do it and then she just puts her hands on her you know, on her hips, and she gives the, that mulligan thing, and she's like, nobody can take away my sunshine. <laughs> All right. <laughs> and that's I'm what like, you yep. said. You are my daughter. <laughs> you are, for sure. You know, we are we are two peas in a pod, because there was no slowing her down. There was no slowing me down then. You know, that was like her saying, go for it, Mom. And I did. You know, I really, I decided to jump on the bandwagon and go really full-time into this, you know. Uh-huh. I'm in the right area, right? If you're in Motown. Oh, yeah, you're in the right area. And how you great is it. that? You know, that not only to get back to, like, what is at your core, singing, but then to have, you know, see your daughter's doing it and she's, she's doing it well, but then to have her, that feistiness, you know, you can, you can never take my sunshine away, but right. <laughs> her also encouraging you. You know, it's like, come on, Mom, you know, this is – this is your next chapter. Aretha didn't tell you to come here for nothing. You know, oh, you're supposed that, to sing. That's almost exactly her words. That's almost uh-huh. exactly her words to me. You know, because she was like, come on, get up there, do it. I know you love to do this. I know you're good at this, Mom. Do it. You know, uh-huh. and and I, I 
I went for it, Michelle, and I, I started small. I started doing little coffee shops, like little open mics, things like uh-huh. that. I, uh, I, I had a point where I was thinking I'm a gay woman, I'm a blues singer, and I'm an activist. How do I put uh-huh. these things together? You know, how, how can I do something that's going to make a change but without hitting people over the head because nobody wants that in entertainment. You don't want to go to have a nice evening out and somebody slamming you something in the head, you know. Instead, you want to give a message that's gentle but, but puts it out there, right? Uh-huh. And so I decided I'm going to do my music, but it's going to be geared towards women. I'm not going to change the wording that it's a guy that I love. Okay, or it's a uh-huh. man that I'm looking at, or it's a, a you know, a, a dude, or I was gonna. No, I'm not gonna do that. I said I'm gonna keep it a woman because this is uh-huh. what I love. This is this is where my heart's at. I'm not gonna change it. So I started this. It's kind of neat. I started with my friend Michelle. She was gonna be my wingman, so to speak, you know. And we were gonna go to all these clubs, and I was gonna sing, you know, open mics. And she was going to be there just like my backup, my manager, my friend, make sure nothing bad happened, okay? Uh-huh. And, and Michelle, I'll tell you, there was a few times I have got a really interesting story. When I first moved to Michigan, me and Michelle were like, okay, the only way we're going to do this is if we start hitting all the clubs. And we go to this sports bar that's down in South Detroit, okay? And and the whole reason we went there is because I did an open mic in Ferndale, and this guy told me, he said, if you really want to connect with the people who know music, you got to hook up with this group, okay? And they were called T-Bomb. And he said, everybody in T-Bomb knows everybody in music. And um, the guy who did it is Bill Sadley. He's a really famous uh, harmonica player, plays a lot of blues. Uh-huh. And he said, go there, Sandy. You know, hook up with these people, and you're gonna, they're going to like your music. You'll see, okay? So me and Michelle go down and warn to this uh, this uh, uh, sports bar, right? And we pull into the parking lot, and there's a lot of pickup trucks, and we're hearing the, the country music coming out, and we're like, oh boy, we're in the wrong place. You know, <laughs> we're going to get hurt. <laughs> Michelle didn't even park the car in the parking lot. She parked the car <laughs> in the, by the front door in case we had to run back out, okay? Because <laughs> we were that scared, okay? But we went in there, and right away they're like, who are you? I don't say They're like, go on up, you know? And uh-huh. I started playing one of my songs called Ruby Red. And, it, and it's a love song. It's a blues song, but to another woman. You know, my woman, she's a winner. She wears white suits, smokes cigars. You know, my woman, she's a winner. She drives a great big fancy car. And we never go too fast now, but we always go too far. You know, uh-huh. kind, of, uh-huh. kind of sexy, racing song, but I'm singing it to a woman in a country western open mic in a sports bar, okay? Uh-huh. So I get up on stage and I start singing this, okay? Before you know it, a guy comes up, he starts playing the bass with me, okay? Then another guy gets up and he's playing the drums, okay? Then another guy gets up and he's playing the lead. Before I'm done with this song, I have an entire group behind me and we're just jamming out these blues. And this is a real traditional blues. And when we were done, I mean, everybody there stood up and clapped, just stood up and clapped. And I was like, wow, this was not what me and Michelle were expecting. We were uh-huh. thinking we might get a bottle thrown at us. You know, <laughs> she had the car in front. We might have to run out. And instead, everybody's very accepting. And then this one guy came up to me. He's a real good friend of mine now, and, and he just passed away. His name was Billy Spielman. He came up to me, and he said, 
And I said, wow, I just sang, sang gay songs, blue songs, and everybody liked it. And he said, you know what? He said, if one person had said even one negative thing, he said, see this group here, and he pointed to all the musicians. He said, we all would have turned on them. Yeah, and that's when I found that musicians, you know, this is a good group of people. They don't care. They don't care if I'm gay or not. They didn't care. Uh-huh. They just they just cared that you could blues. sing. <laughs> it was good mm-hmm. blues music, and they loved mm-hmm. it. Right, and they absolutely loved it, you know. It was a good lesson to start. It was a good way to start, you know. So we took it from there, you know. So how did you get into blues? I mean, there's all different genres, but blues is your niche. How did you get there? Blues gets under your skin, you know. Um, You know, I mean, rock can, some songs, some love songs can get to you. But blues, there's that there's that little something that can raise the hair on your hands, you know. Mm-hmm. It just it, it, when it's done right, you feel it, and and I like that because from being an artist at first, I knew that this is what you've got to do with art. You've got to make an impression. You've got to touch somebody in a deeper way. If you don't touch them in a deeper way, you're just you know you're just another day, another person, another picture, another piece, you know, another song. But if you do something that's really deep that's going to touch someone, that's going to make an impression. And I thought blues did that. And plus, I don't know, I've got that bluesy voice. Uh-huh. <laughs> I got that, some people call it a whiskey voice, but I don't drink whiskey, so I'm just fortunate. <laughs> uh-huh. I just wanted to have music that could really touch somebody, and, and blues does that. Well, you know, it's interesting because as you were, you know how you had said how Willie Nelson had, had wanted to um, wanted to hear some of your music, but you know I also think of like some of his songs, which can go. I mean, you can even think of people like Dolly Parton, you know, who did the song that Whitney Houston did, or well, one that, that Willie Nelson came to my was "You Were Always on My Mind," and you right. know, all of a sudden I could hear you singing that. Right, right, and 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 the song that he was interested in is was called. Stormy weather, not the old stormy weather. This is my mm-hmm. version, my my stormy weather, and 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 it's a, it was like a, it wasn't country, it wasn't bluesy, it was kind of like in the middle, but but I mm-hmm. think you're right because he does have that uh, ability to transcend different kind of forms, you know, and make them his own, you know, which is mm-hmm. which is wonderful when you can do that, you know. Yeah, that was that was an exciting moment. It never became of anything, but just starting off, it was a good like a good boost. You know, they know that there's that your music is good enough that there's people who are actually looking at it. You know. Mm-hmm. So how did the gypsies come together? Because <laughs> it was clearly it was like friendship, but it was like you played well off of each other and the name the gypsies. You know, <laughs> how, how did that come about? Well, you know, I was doing all these open mics, and then I started having some paid for gigs, and. uh I started going to uh, the Rainbow Room, and that was in Detroit. Uh-huh. That was a gay, gay and lesbian bar. And uh, I started going there because a few t- people told me that, you know, they're very welcoming to singers, okay? And uh, I blew them away, okay? <laughs> uh-huh. It was a really singing these blues, gay songs to, to an audience that loved it, okay? Uh-huh. And uh, the first time I did it, the owners came to me afterwards and say, we want you back again, okay? Well, you got to come because you're, you're going to bring people in. This is great. So I did it again. But 
Now I was like, well, I don't want to just get up there and sing alone, you know. It really would sound better if I had like a, like a little bit of drums, you know. So I asked a friend of mine who I met um, with this whole T-Bomb group, Barb Teeter, and asked her, would you play drums? Uh, not even drums, just play congos. Just we have a little something in the background. So we did a show, and she played the congas, and I sang, and it went over really good. And then my daughter's like, Mom, you know what you need? You need backup singers. You got to <laughs> <laughs> So uh-huh. her and her friend, uh, her and her friend Liz, they said they're going to be backup singers. And it was kind of cool because they wore this whole little leopard skin thing, and they were going to do this whole little, you know, where they both move in the same way. So so then we added backup singers. And, and then this friend of mine, she wasn't even a friend. She was like one of the women that came to see the show. Her name was Nisha Sparks. She came up to me and said, I don't really know you, but I'm going to tell you, I've always wanted to play guitar and get up there, but I've never had the courage to do it, okay? And And she just wanted to, like, compliment me on doing this. And I said, well, if you don't have the courage, well, then get up there and join me. And she said, I haven't played the guitar in 20 years. I was like, well, pick it up. Come on, you know. And it was kind of cool because that is how exactly how we met. And Nisha, who hadn't played in 20 years, I said, let me come over to your house. We'll go over some songs. Next time I play at the birdcage, you're going to sing with me, you know. You're going to play with me. And she did. You know, we learned like three or four songs. She got up there and loved it. Loved it. It was so funny. After the show, she said she doesn't even know what she was doing, but she just had so much fun being up on stage. And and then eventually we met Paulette. Same sort of situation where we met her in the crowd. She said, I just want to play with you guys. I don't know what, I don't know what instrument, but I just want to play. And we said, well, we could use a bass. And she goes, okay. She goes, I got a bass from my mother. She used to play years ago. I can do that. And she did. So then we actually... We were just like this group of just people who were all put together. Some of them knew how to play, some didn't, you know. It didn't matter. I said, let's just practice and make this our own. You know, we don't need to, you don't need to have years and years of music behind you. Let's just make this our own. And it's kind of cool because out of that, we got our gypsy sound. Out of not knowing what we were, we became something, you know. And that, that was, and they were all gay women. And that's how the gypsies took off. And the reason we called it the gypsies is because at first it was like, well, you can play drums, but if you don't want to, somebody else will come in and take your place. It's not a big deal. You know, don't Uh worry. And if you get stage fright at the last minute, you don't want to do it, don't worry. Somebody else can come in. I mean, I told them, this is what our band is. We're just like like a bunch of gypsies. You come in, you come out, we'll play, not play, nothing formal. And that's how it just became. It stuck then, gypsies. So then it became Sandy Mulligan and her band of gypsies. And then eventually we just went with Sandy Mulligan and the Gypsies, you know. Mm-hmm. And, and this is literally how we came together, just piece by piece, everybody not knowing what we're doing, but finding something, finding a common ground, which was we all love music, we want to perform, we want to be a part of this, you know. Mm-hmm. And, and that's how our band came about, Michelle. And, you know, and, yeah. and to go, like, like you said, from just like coming together and really encouraging each other, come on, you can do it. That you yeah, ended up playing yeah. like over a hundred gigs. You played oh, at the we, Jazz Club. You opened <laughs> yes. for the Detroit Music Awards. Yeah, um, yeah. You know, and you played. I, you know, I know how many times that you played at at the different Pride festivals. And yes. then you were nominated five years in a row for a Detroit Music Award. 
I mean, yeah, not so, bad so. for some people who just sort of found <laughs> each other, you know. And I'm listening to you tell it. It, it is. It was pretty remarkable that what we did in, in five years. You know how we just came. This whole band of women, gay women, who some of us didn't even know what we're doing. Just say, let's make a sound, and we did. And Michelle, you've heard us. We have such a unique sound. It was so uh-huh. different. It was not. It was not like everybody else, and there was a real synergy on that stage, you know, real synergy. And, and everybody had their role, and everybody knew what they were supposed to do. And, and, and then we had that point in our heads where, like, if we do this right and together, it's going to sound amazing, and that would happen. And that seemed to happen night after night, and we'd have those moments. And, and Michelle, there was these times when no matter where we would play, we would get people to come to their feet and just clap hard, and we knew we were onto something. You know, we knew it. We could just feel it. Yeah, that was not the normal reaction of just seeing, like, another band, you know. Mm-hmm. So we, we felt you, like, we, you know, we had something to give, you know. And you, and you stayed true to yourself. I recall the night when Nisha's daughter was there, and she was going to sing this one song, and she just, I mean, it was like, oh, my daughter's here. Oh, well. And then you guys just, like, went right into it. You know, you didn't change the <laughs> lyrics. You didn't try to, like, you know, it was like, well, you know, if she doesn't know I'm gay, you know, you know, know now. She been, you know, what rock has she been under? And, right. uh, this, and this, is, this is the music that the gypsies do. And so let's do it, you know. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. And that's exactly what we did. We did stay true to ourselves. And I always felt like, Michelle, that was my activism. I was bringing... True love songs, blues songs, you know, a couple modified gypsy songs, but making them for women, you know, and it was kind of, and nobody minded it. Nobody cared. Mm-hmm. I mean, we played in some, I mean, there there was a time where whatever bar in Detroit had live music, we already were there. You know, we we mm-hmm. were like every weekend we were playing so many gigs, so many festivals. We were just like grinding it out there. And I think that had an effect because I think, you know, a lot of people started to get to know us as that, that lesbian band, that, that group of women. But I never mm-hmm. heard they sing gay songs. I never heard that, you know. Mm-hmm. We, heard, we heard we were a lesbian band, but nobody ever said we're singing gay songs. And yet we were because we didn't, we didn't change the pronouns. We kept, them, we kept them true to who we were, you know. And that was kind of cool. And I know, like, when we would do, would do the open mics at Affirmations, whenever I would call you, you guys were there, and you did it. And it was, and because you were unapologetically who you were, you sang songs, like you said, you didn't change. If anything, you changed them to, to match lifting up the, the LGBTQ community, particularly lesbians, particularly the women who were there, and not only just, just lesbians, but there were trans women yes. who were yes. really impacted by that. Yes. And, and even by the fact that you got up there and sang, and you didn't, like, play and then run off. You played and you encouraged the next, you know, oh, it's your first time, yay! You know, you guys clapped. Yes, you encouraged right. everyone right. who came up behind, which is partly in why, why we, we called you the the unofficial official band of affirmations because <laughs> and we love of that, that role that you that. did. <laughs> uh, and I have such a warm affection for those those times we played at affirmations. I really do because because it was a really good group of people running it. There was a a, a real diverse uh, audience and a diverse uh, uh, entertainment 
you know, and you never knew what was next. And 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 I I know for a fact that uh, several times I would play, and then you would tell a story, and then I would play again, and it was like it was just like this whole it just became a fantastic evening of music, poetry, and there was a uh, uh, other people would come read their stories, mm-hmm. or just tell a little story or their poetry, and I you'd have some women just get up there and say. I don't have any music, and we're like, that's okay. Just get up there and sing. It's okay. We don't need music, you know. Mm-hmm. Or we'll, mm-hmm. we'll play the bongos in the background, whatever, whatever makes you feel comfortable. Because, because I think we all did encourage us each other, you know. And that that's part of that warmth of of being there. I, I love those days. Now you know you had a wonderful run with the Gypsies, but you also continued to sing solo and with your daughter. And I recall like it was like when you went on a road trip with Sister Otis, who is like a staple, legendary around this area. And how did that feel like, you know, when you went on that road trip with Sister Otis without your Gypsies? Um, You know, I, I, they're like my backbone. There was no, Uh no, me or them, you know, we were just a, a very tight group. But I was uh-huh. fortunate enough to be the only one that could actually just take off. Uh-huh. And just take off for a month and say, I'm going to go. Everybody else had, you know, commitments where they had to stay. And I, I was just so blessed that I wasn't. Um, she had called me up one day and said, hey, Sandy, I'm going to be doing this whole thing in Montana, Wyoming. Come on and join me. And I told her, I've never been on tour before. And she's like, oh, it's hard, but you'll love it, okay? And uh, I went out there, and I, and I did find out what touring is all about. It is hard because you're playing maybe a gig in the afternoon, uh, uh. maybe another one in the evening, day after day after day, you know. You just got to be on. So there's no, like, oh, I've got all week to plan for it. No, no, you're, today you're in this city, and you're on, and that's it, you know. Um, so, so it was, it was a real learning curve to, to find out what it was like to be on, on tour. Um, a lot of times we just slept in the car because we stayed so late. We didn't have anywhere to go, you know, and it's, it is a hard, it is a hard life for a musician, you know, to play day in and day out. And I, I hung on there with her for about a month and then I said, well, that's about all I'm going to do. I think uh-huh. that was my end. And God bless her. She keeps doing this. She's amazing. She does this in Montana. She's down in New Orleans. She's doing this in, in uh, Louisiana right now. She'll be coming back up to Michigan later this year. She's, she's a trooper. She can. Uh-huh. So that, it was great being with her. That was really exciting. But it was, it was kind of different not being with the gypsies because usually we started uh-huh. leaning on each other. Okay. Uh-huh. Whereas with Sister Otis, I would open for her, so I would sort of be the warm-up person, and then she would go on, you know. But that, that was fun. That was a learning, a learning experience for sure, and I loved it. I would go on for her again any time. Uh-huh. <laughs> that's that's yeah. going to be my next question. Would, did that like, scratch it off your bucket list, or would that be something that you would do again? Well, you know, um, I would love to do it with actually with the gypsies, and I know we've been asked to perform in Cleveland. We've been asked to perform in Toledo. You know, so we, we talked about that so many times. But I think what happened, uh, what happened recently is uh, a lot of the gypsies, uh, the girls have gone on to their own projects uh-huh. and uh, their own, uh, they've got their own little uh, situations where they're going to music in their own directions. And I'm kind of getting more to where I want my music to be a little quieter. Uh-huh. Maybe 
just bluesy. I don't want to go into the rock thing. I kind of want to get a little more personal mm-hmm. and intimate with my music. So, so we're not, probably not going to do the gypsies anymore. Um, but we had a great run. I mean, five years of just the best of times. And how many bands can say they've been nominated five years in a row that they've been around? So we have a lot to be proud of, a lot of kudos. Uh-huh. We've won a lot of uh, different awards and, and placed in a lot of different competitions and things. So we did really great. We even have a recording out. But but recently we just decided that we're all going to kind of do our own thing and uh-huh. we're going to kind of go into a little more rock thing and – that's not really my forte. I'm not somebody uh-huh. who wants to rock it out. I like when I have a smaller group, and when I'm singing, I can kind of see their faces and, and feel the audience energy. So I'm kind of uh-huh. going in that direction now. Yeah. Well, you are a blues singer. I mean, you were one of a dozen of the women to sing the blues at the Blues Girls of Summer. You were right. nominated for an Outstanding Women's Award. I mean, yeah. you were there with Fornetta Davis. Yeah. The blues is in your blood. Yeah. I mean, I think that, that, that's who, right. That's who I am. And I, and I got to uh-huh. stay true to that. I do have uh-huh. to stay true to that. I can't see myself um, doing anything but that because that, that uh-huh. is, an, and, and you're right, the Blues Girls of Summer, um, you know, they said they picked the 12 best blues singers in all of Detroit. And I was really honored to be part of that group. I mean, the women there that were singing are just powerhouses of blues, powerhouses. I was mm-hmm. really honored to be a part of that. I, I don't want to lose that. I love that, that that we all have that understanding of what our music's doing. You know, I love that. I'm mm-hmm. not going to get away from that, Michelle. That's that's who I am, and I'm going to stay true to that. Mm-hmm. But yeah. okay, so now you were nominated. You had that, but how perfect was it to win the Detroit Music Award with your daughter? <laughs> that's that's like truly a highlight in my life. You know, here we both come to Michigan, not knowing anybody. We start from literally the bottom, her and me both on the bottom, but we co-mingled our gigs here and there, you know. We both made a name for ourselves, and, and yet we'd always find time to do gigs together, always, you know, because we have this, um, me and Chrissy just have that. I think uh-huh. it's just from being a mother and daughter our, our harmonies, just we know when to sing and when not to sing, and and she knows where to come in and go out, and I do too, and it's just it's just beautiful when we sing together. So we try to do as many as we could together, but we never really thought that that would end up in a Detroit Music Award, never in a million years. And it's kind of neat when we got uh, when we got nominated. You know, I saw the category it said family music, and I thought. Oh boy! If anybody's heard my songs, that's not family music. <laughs> well, wait a minute. There's family, and there's family. <laughs> but there's family. Exactly. Yeah, you know, for some of us, it's family music. <laughs> exactly. Mm-hmm. I, I never even thought of it that way. That is so spot on. <laughs> well, I I actually called um, the the woman who was putting this the whole Detroit Music Awards together because I had known her from from doing this show earlier. And I asked her, I said, is this correct? <laughs> like, is this a mistake? You know, because we're in the family category. And she said, no. She said, Sandy, she goes, you and Chrissy are family members who are known in the Detroit music community. You are family music, okay? This category is not just honoring family type of music. It's honoring a family that's making music. 
And she uh-huh. said, take this and hold your head up high because everybody in the music community respects both of you. And that's exactly what we did. We were just thrilled. You know, when they announced our names, uh, our, our good friend uh, Amy took a picture of us at that very moment where we're throwing the trophy up in the air and we're like, yes. You know, we did it. <laughs> well, you know, it's funny because I had someone from our affirmation state who said, so Sandy and Chrissy made a family, I mean, is it like children's song? And I said, no, you know their mother and daughter, they are a family. Yes. And they were like, oh, because they were going like, because they were thinking about your music. And right. they were going like, how did that happen? You know, this I know. <laughs> and they were going like, no, no. <laughs> right. We did the same thing. We were like, hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. We, mm-hmm. we sing pretty sexy songs to be in a family category. But how and, nice and sexy is gay that? songs, you know, to be, mm-hmm. you know. <laughs> but how nice is that? Because I've seen her sing with you, and you sing with her, and, and you two do have a a really good balance, the way that you, like you said, you play off each other, you know, you know, who to take it one way, who's taking it the other way. So it's really nice to see and to have that acknowledgement, not only, you know, be, that the community recognizes the work that the two of you have done. Yeah, that, that, that I think is what really meant the most to us is that they told us, you know, specifically that, that, you know, you two are a family and we respect that, 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 uh, respecting family musicians in Detroit is a tradition, and we were blown away. We were just we were shocked because we never saw that happening. Now Chrissy's mm-hmm. been nominated in several categories on her own, and I have too. But neither of us ever won. You know, we, mm-hmm. we would just get nominated, and and that alone we'd consider an honor. You know, that's a, an honor that you make it past the the. Uh, you know, you keep going higher and higher, and, and your name is still there, and you're like, wow, this is great. And it's voted on. It's not voted by the public. It's voted on uh, musicians that are professional in the business. There's 3,000 uh-huh. voters that are involved in this, and these are all people that are professionals in the business. So to have them acknowledge us was was really important, and it felt really good, Michelle. It felt like you know, we gave up so many weekends. We've worked so hard. It's been so many times, you know, you're practicing and practicing and, and trying new work. And, and to have that, to get that award just kind of made it all feel right, like it was all worth it, you know. It was, it was a really good moment. And to do it with my daughter, you know, at that moment when we got the award, I kept thinking how she said, you know, no one can take away my sunshine. And I was thinking, you know what, nobody can take away our sunshine. So. Did you ask them up front, will there be two awards, or did you flip a coin to see who took it home first? <laughs> well, I gave it to her and said, you deserve it. You know, we, oh, they uh-huh. told us we can order another one, but it was like, no, this is the special one. I told her to take it home. It's on her mantle, and oh. that's okay with me. Yeah, that's okay with me. <laughs> okay, you can go visit. <laughs> you go exactly. Visit. You can, and, if you don't, and if you can say, I didn't come to visit you. I came to visit our award. <laughs> exactly, our award. <laughs> I go there and polish it a little, you know. <laughs> really special. I mean, and, and really, that is, that is so special. And that's, that's something that, you know, you two will always have. So that, I think yeah. that that's really wonderful. Well, I know yeah. you talked about how, you know, some are, part of the gypsies are going to go on and do their own thing, and right. you're going to do things a little more intimate um, 
I know that you're yeah. going to be working with Nisha, you know, yeah. I mean. Yeah. So actually last night we were, uh, we were uh-huh. together last night working on a, a new song called Helpless um, mm. that I wrote. And because uh, I like always think my songs are basically poetry put into music, right? And uh-huh. it's a song about how oppressive things are right now. You know, uh-huh. you kind of feel hopeless. You wake uh-huh. up in the morning, you just feel, you know, you turn on the news, you feel hopeless, you know. And I thought that would be a good theme for a blues song because I know a lot of people have that feeling. You wake up and it's just, it's like an ominous gray heaviness, you know, that we never had before. That's just like uh-huh. lingers all the time. You don't want to even see what the news is. You want to know what, what the next tweet is. I don't even care. It's so horrible at this point, you know. And mm-hmm. and so we were working on this song together. And it was kind of nice because Nisha plays the lead guitar and I play the rhythm. And it sounded really good, you know. So we're... we're uh, we're hoping within the next few months to put out a five-song CD. That's our goal right now. Um, we're working on original songs for it. We're going to stick strictly blues because that's that's where we feel our hearts are, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're putting out two or three songs just to kind of start our new journey together, me and Nisha, you know, just be mm-hmm. me and her. And, and that's, that's kind of cool because uh, Nisha's got – that girl's got a lot of soul in her. You know? Yes, she does. She does. Mm-hmm. I love yeah. watching her on stage. You know, she's mm-hmm. just, she's the most natural. Everybody who comes to our shows would always say, wow, you can't take your eyes off Nisha. You know? <laughs> <laughs> she just gets mm-hmm. so into the music, you know, I love it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so how will people, where you're going to be, you know, when that, that, that uh, five song CD is going to come right. out, how, what's the best way for them to, to follow you? Well, right now we have the, uh, the Facebook uh, site, but we haven't really revamped it to what our new direction is. We haven't done that yet. Uh-huh. You know, just everything right now is new. You know, I just kind of took a break after we won the award. We just took like a six-month break, just kind of stopped performing. Uh, you know, I, uh, I refused a few gigs or refused a few recordings, a few opportunities. I just wanted to take some time and regroup myself, you know. Uh-huh. I felt like we did really good, and I just needed that space. And we're just starting now, so... So I imagine we'll probably, uh, hopefully, we'll start another Facebook site with our with our new mu- music, um, uh-huh. you know. And then there's different things that I guess we'll put out a web page because that's what we did before, and that works out really good. Um, uh-huh. That that hopefully I can reach them again and and let them know where I'll be performing. Some I'll figure it out. I guess I haven't really put too much thought in that yet, you know. Uh-huh. Yeah, well, yeah. Now, one thing that you know. Less people think that you've just been sitting at home eating bonbons and bucking your nails. <laughs> uh, along this path and this journey, you've gotten married. You've got two beautiful grandchildren. You've yes. started a, a whole new home with your wife. You've done yes. some traveling. Um, we sure have. So, we, so this is like this, this, this next chapter of your life. And it sounds right. to me like there's a balance. You know, you, you've done the whole artist thing. You've done, like, heavily into music. But now you've got this balance of being in this loving relationship, of, of being a grandma, of, yeah. of just enjoying life. How's it feeling? Yeah. Oh, 
Well, you know, you mentioned travel. We we did. We we've traveled all around the United States, and anytime you see us on Facebook, we're in another state doing something. You know. Oh. Uh, oh, and your dog. You know, and uh, we just got back from Nova Scotia. We took some time and went up there, and went down to Kentucky. We we're down in Georgia. You know, it's kind of, kind of. You know, we're at that point where let's just see everything. Let's get a lot of, really a lot in. You know, let's get a lot in. And we, we bought a beautiful home out in the country, and we're sort of homesteading now, which is we're mm-hmm. trying to be as independent as possible. Uh, so we cut our own wood and split our own wood. We got a wood-burning stove and, and uh-huh. did some canning, and I grew vegetables. I'm just loving it. Uh, we're in a tiny little town called Manchester, Arbor. Um, so I, I spend more time in Ann Arbor now than I do in Detroit. Um, uh-huh. but Manchester is just a very loving small town, and I've, I've yeah I've kind of changed my life now. I've decided to just kind of stop the madness of the music for a while because it did start to take over our entire lives to where we didn't have time to breathe. And and I have this beautiful relationship with my wife Carrie. Uh, she's she's come into my life and changed it in so many positive ways. Um, and I hope I've changed hers as well. Um, we have a really good balance between me and her and living out in the country um, and traveling. And, and, you know, and she's, she's wonderful in the way that she accepts what I do. Uh-huh. Except she gets it that there's times I've got to write music. She gets it that I'm working on poetry. She gets it that, you know, there's times when we need to make a stand now or we need to, we need to change this. No matter what direction you're going in, she's there for me. So she's she's been my backbone a lot recently, uh-huh. and I'm I consider myself incredibly blessed to find somebody like her. You know, who's who's dynamic in her own way. You know, how uh-huh. how how great is I mean, I'm blessed, Michelle. I'm truly blessed. Uh-huh. And and those two little grandkids, I'm. Uh-huh. <laughs> well, Sandy, I'm gonna tell you. I mean, each chapter of your life seems to get better and better. And yeah. I look forward to seeing what what's going to come from you and Nisha and to watch you and Carrie travel about and see those grandkids grow up. I want to yeah. thank you for being with me today. I mean, it's been like I know you in many ways. I, I always say like we were sisters separated from Beth, but it's been really good to, yes. to, to get to know you better. And, Michelle, every time I talk to you, it's like even if we don't see each other, it's like time hasn't gone by. You know, it's always an enjoyable experience, you know, always. And I want to thank you for having me on your show. I I consider it an honor and a privilege always to be with you and work with you. Well, and we will again in the future very soon. Oh, for sure. sure. I want to thank today's guest, singer, songwriter, and artist, Sandy Mulligan. You can listen to this or past episodes of the show on SoundCloud iTunes, Stitcher, or Blog Talk Radio. Be sure and follow Collections by Michelle Brown Blog Radio on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And let us know if you have a suggestion for a guest or topic for a future show. Join us next week when I'll introduce you to another amazing individual living between the lines, standing boldly in the crosshairs of their intersectionality, and creating change right here on Collections by Michelle Brown. Thank you for listening. 
Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, believe it by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.